Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. Welcome to the Betsy and Walter Stern Conference Center here at Hudson Institute uh, for what is a very exciting event on the Global Magnitsky Act, Ending Impunity for Human Rights Abusers. Very shortly, we're going to have a uh, very interesting discussion featuring Bill Browder, the uh, author of Red Notice, A True Story of High Finance Murder and One's Man, One Man's Fight for Justice, which is an incredible read, and it, the book is, is gripping. Bill is a man of immense uh, moral courage, and I had the honor of just uh, a couple hours ago testifying alongside him before the House International Affairs Committee on the Global Magnitsky Act, and uh, it was fun seeing him in, in action there. It'll be even more fun this evening, uh, and he'll be in discussion with Charles Davidson, the executive director of Hudson's uh, new kleptocracy initiative, and Kyle Parker, who is a staff member at the uh, Committee on Foreign Affairs. Hudson is an uh, American think tank dedicated to strong and engaged U.S. international leadership in partnership with our allies, defending human rights, defending the rule of law. It's some of the most crucial work that we do as an organization. As part of that effort, uh, this year we founded a new initiative, the Kleptocracy Initiative, which is an effort that is aimed at addressing the threats posed by corrupt authoritarian regimes to Western democracy and U.S. national security, a threat that uh, is posed by the growing financial leverage that kleptocrats and their allies uh, have on the economies of the West and also at times on the politics of the West. Uh, as we've seen in uh, political financing, particularly from Russia, other countries as well, in both East and Western Europe, posing a threat to uh, democracy, uh, rule of law, and uh, democratic accountability. Given the, uh, the threat that these uh, kleptocracies pose to democracy in their own countries and to the defense of uh, freedom ab abroad, we created this initiative to highlight uh, this important issue and we're very fortunate that uh, Charles Davidson, who is also the uh, publisher of uh, the wonderful review, The American Interest, is uh, the executive director of this initiative with us, and it's my honor to turn the floor over to him. Well, thank you, Ken. You did introduce the kleptocracy initiative for me. Thanks. So I don't have to do that now. That's great. So I will just briefly introduce um, Bill Browder and Kyle Parker, and we have such a distinguished audience here that we decided we're going to be relatively brief, so Bill will speak and uh, uh, Kyle will, will counterpoint a little bit, and then we're actually going to move to Q&A uh, fairly quickly in about uh, half an hour. So introducing, um, introducing uh, Bill Browder is, is very easy and always a pleasure. I, I had the honor of interviewing him twice for the American Interest magazine. Um, and uh, and uh, that that was great. And it's always very refreshing for me to deal with a business person as opposed to all these political types because I used to be a <laughs> business person, and it's just so straightforward and easy. Uh, so 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 that was uh, that was nice. Uh, and uh, Bill is uh, on the advisory council of the Kleptocracy Initiative and has been hugely supportive. Uh, of the initiative from the start, instrumental in our current name because we had a, a very sort of um, hard-to-remember name. It was the Financial Corruption and Autocracy Initiative, something like that. Anyway, 
And, and Bill was exasperated one day at one of our meetings and, and said he's been talking to everybody about the kleptocracy initiative and it's such a great thing, but he can never remember the name of it. And we actually started out with the uh, code name the Anti-Kleptocracy Initiative, and then we figured that the anti was perhaps not really needed. Although there are, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Putin money in this town, and I, I was at a, a, a different think tank, not the Hudson Institute, but a, a different think tank, and somebody asked me, uh, based on my business card, whether I was in favor of kleptocracy or against it. I can't remember exactly how they put it. And I told them that no one had offered me enough money yet to be in favor of it. And they, they took that very seriously. They, it seemed like a reasonable answer uh, to them. So uh, uh, now we have Congressman McGovern who has just joined us. So actually, uh, I think Bill could introduce Congressman McGovern. And then perhaps, Congressman, you'd like to say a few words First, about the about Global Magnitsky, and we'll take it from there. Um, I, should we just sit? Down? You want to sit? You want to? Yeah. You want to let's just sit. So, um, <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk a little bit later. But um, uh, uh, when I came to Washington to fight for justice for Sergei Magnitsky, I didn't know that much about um, how one does things in, in Washington, and. Uh, I was invited by um, the Tom Lantos um, Human Rights Subcommittee, of which Congressman McGovern is, is chairman, um, in the summer of, of 2010 um, to, to uh, testify about what was going on in Russia. And, and I, I came to his um, committee. And I came actually un, unprepared. Um, I didn't know you were supposed to um, write up a, um, a testimony and, and then read off of it I, and have statistics. and, and Analysis. I, I just thought you were supposed to talk, and so I came and talked, and and um, and I came and, and I and I told the story of, of Sergei Magnitsky, um, not with any statistics or any any anything prepared, but just just the human story of this young man who tried to do the right thing and who was then um, uh, tortured and murdered by his government for trying to do the right thing. And and uh, at the end of my testimony, I. I um, the, as I was, the one thing I did know is you're supposed to ask for something, and so I, I said, "Could could you um, um, could you support our efforts in, in calling on the State Department to do something about this?" And, and Congressman McGovern said, "Why should we um, call on the State Department? We make laws in Congress." And um, he was the one um, who um, uh, then initiated the Sergei Magnitsky Act, which has become one of the, mo one of the most important pieces of human rights legislation. Um, that, uh, that's happened in the last few decades, and um, what I've learned since then is that Congressman McGovern is is involved in almost every piece of important anything to do with human rights. His name is on it, um, whether it has to do with um, going after Joseph Kony or or, or a, just about anything that there is going on in Congress to do with human rights. He, he, he's the man. He's kind of the dean of human rights in in Washington, and and. Um, he's also the, the author of the Global Sergei Magnitsky Act and, and um, a very successful politician from Massachusetts and a good friend, and I'm glad that he's here to um, con continue to support our efforts and, and to be moving this process forward. Well, well thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm really honored to be here, but uh, Bill Browder and Cal Parker really are the experts on all this stuff, so I'm going to be very, very brief. Uh, uh, but I, I hope everybody here has read Bill's book, Red Notice. Um, it is a, it is a page turner. 
Uh, it is like one of the most suspenseful books that I think I've ever read, um, but it's all true. Um, and um, it, it makes you realize um, just how cruel some people can be um, and the terrible plight of Sergei Magnitsky. It, it's, it's a heartbreaking breaking story, but, um, but people ought to read it. They ought to understand um, you know, what human rights defenders go through um, and what they're subjected to. And in this case, unfortunately, um, Sergei Magnitsky was, was murdered um, uh, by Russian authorities. But kind of the, the whole kind of the, the impetus behind the bill originally, um, when when Bill and Kyle first came to uh, the uh, the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission, was the, the was was a, was the view that people who do terrible things ought to face a consequence. And what do you do when uh, you have a country uh, that has a lot of people in its government that do terrible things to other people, uh, but there's no rule of law in that country. There's no way to get justice in that country. Uh, and then to kind of complicate things further is that uh, in this case, you know, Russia and the United States have a kind of a, a very complicated relationship. Uh, and there's this tendency to not want to further complicate it by going after individuals um, who quite frankly deserve to be sought after uh, and deserve to be pointed out for their terrible actions. And um, and we thought that, that this was one way to hold human rights uh, abusers and people who are guilty of uh, corruption accountable. Uh, it's not a substitute for a judicial system in Russia that works, um, and, um, but it's something. And what bothered me, and, not, and, it's, and again why we, we're all here for this global Magnitsky bill, is that um, there are too many countries uh, where people get away with things where there's no consequence uh, to uh, violating uh, others' uh, human rights. And, um, and there ought to be. And we were all kind of tired of, of sending letters and issuing statements and, you know, and you know, going through kind of the usual stuff you all go through every time you know, uh, there's a country that, uh, you know, where somebody's uh, rights are being abused and then nothing ever happens, but you can feel good that you at least raised your voice. And, um, and so we thought that this was an appropriate step. Um, and, it, and, it, and what makes it unique is it goes after the individuals. So um, you know, this is not anti, the Magnitsky Act was never anti-Russia. It was anti-bad guys in Russia. Uh, it, it was against those who commit human rights violations, those who rip off their, their citizens and who are guilty of corruption. And, um, you know, and... Um, so, you know, we're not talking about massive sanctions against the country of Russia. We're talking about making it clear to those individuals and others who might follow in their footsteps that if you do something like this, if you murder somebody, um, if you steal money, um, if you're a human rights violator, then you're not going to be welcome in the United States, that you're going to be put on a list and, you're, uh, and your assets are going to be frozen. You can't hide all the money you steal and U.S. banks. And that, of course, has implication with other countries as well, you know, uh, in terms of how these individuals are treated. And we'd like the rest of the world to kind of follow suit. Uh, but um, it makes sense, I think, in, in, in for Russia, but it makes sense globally. And so Congressman Chris Smith, uh, you know, is taking the lead this time on the global next bill, and I, you know, are, are trying to kind of finish what we started. Just one final point. You know, we almost had a global magnitsky bill. That was kind of the original intent. 
but in the back and forth uh, and compromises and issues about costs and you know on and on and on um, it, it was it was kind of whittled down um, I think we want to go back to what it was originally intended to be and that is you know a global a global bill and so uh, I'm optimistic that we're going to uh, we're going to see things uh, move. Um, there's great bipartisan support, um, just as there was on the original Magnitsky bill. I mean, you had liberals like me from Massachusetts working with conservatives like John McCain, and you know, and, and then you, you know, you had people like Ben Cardin, and uh, uh, you know, and very conservative members, um, you know, uh, of the House and Senate, all kind of coming together around this. And um, but I think it's the right thing to do. And I always, I've always felt that if the United States of America stands for anything, we ought to stand out loud and foursquare for human rights. And, um, and, and this is a consequence. This is, this is, this is a response that, uh, that means something. And so, uh, so I'm looking forward to working with the team up here to making sure that this becomes law, and hopefully we will move it quickly, and um, we can then celebrate a great victory for human rights. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, so uh, let me let me just spend a few minutes. I think it's be more interesting to have a conversation than me just talk at you. But uh, and I, as I look out in the audience, uh, I I see I think about half the audience somehow participated one way or another in this um, in this exercise to get the Magnitsky Act passed. I mean, I see so many friends and supporters. This is almost like the if the Russians wanted to. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> Don't give many ideas. <laughs> <laughs> it's being live streamed, so. <laughs> and it's not just the Russians anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 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 th I thought maybe I would just tell tell the story. Um, a, a lot of you played a role in, in different parts of the story, but maybe I just tell the, the, the story in in a very abbreviated form of how of how the Magnitsky Act. Came about and and um, and how the global Magnitsky Act is now um, sort of blossoming from that, just just to fill in the narrative for everybody so they have it in their in their heads. And and since I know most of you, uh, I'm not going to give you the whole um, uh, background story. Uh, I'm going to start start from the from from the middle. Um, so as as you probably know, Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer. Um, as my lawyer, he had. Um, uh, we had my offices had been raided by the um, by the Moscow police, and they seized all of our documents, and then they used those documents to perpetrate a, a massive fraud, not against me, but against the Russian government, where they stole two hundred and thirty million dollars. And Sergei Magnitsky was a um, uh, an idealistic young man. He was thirty six at the time, and um, uh, he, and he was also a very sort of black and white law, good and bad. Um, law and order type of person, and he said that we shouldn't allow these officials to steal money from my country, and uh, and he was adamant um, that that we should expose them, and and we also were all under the impression that Vladimir Putin <coughs> was a, a nationalist. Um, we thought that he might be a bad guy, he might be a liar, he might be a um, uh, a lot of things, but we thought he was a nationalist, and and uh, and he might have. Uh, might have allowed people to steal money from me, but this wasn't my money that was stolen. This was the Russian government's money. And so we thought that if we exposed, if we filed criminal complaints with all the different law enforcement agencies of, of Russia and we publicized this massive fraud against the Russian government, and if Sergei testified against the people involved, 
So the good guys will get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. Um, and so we did all that, and we discovered that in the Putin regime, there are no good guys, only bad guys. And instead of going after the people who committed this massive financial fraud um, against the government, <clears throat> the authorities went after Sergei Magnitsky. And on, on um, November 24, 2008, at um, 8 in the morning, in front of his wife and two children, um, the same people he testified against came to his home, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, where he was then uh, tortured to get him withdraw his test- to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with uh, 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to s- impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat um, and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with um, no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. And um, they did all this because they wanted him to withdraw his testimony, and they wanted him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million. And um, uh, you never, nobody ever knows how they would behave under this type of duress. I don't know how I would behave. Sergei didn't know how, wouldn't have known how he would have behaved in advance. But when he was faced with, with an incredible terrible choice between um, uh, bearing false witness and perjuring himself on one hand um, uh, or um, uh, not being tortured on the other. For him, the, the emotional um, pain of, 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 uh, of uh, lying and, and destroying his own um, credibility was, was more painful than the physical pain he had been put under, and uh, he refused to... Um, he refused to sign their confession. And his um, conditions got worse and worse, and after six months, he got very sick. He lost 40 pounds. He was d- diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation. And um, one week before the operation was due, they came to him again with this false confession that he wanted, they wanted him to sign. He refused, and then they abruptly moved him to a prison <clears throat> without medical facilities. And at, at this new prison without medical facilities, his health completely broke down. He went into constant agonizing pain. He was refused all medical treatment, and he eventually um, went into critical condition on the night of November 16th. On that night, they then moved him back to a prison with a hospital, but instead of treating him, um, they um, put him in an isolation cell, chained him to a bed, and then eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died at the age of 37. And, and I got the news on the next day, and it was by far the most painful, life-changing, traumatic uh, experience news communications that I could have ever gotten. And um, I couldn't carry on life the way I lived it before. I, I, there was no way I could go on just being a regular businessman. Um, for me, the, the only thing that I could do at that point was to take my time, energy, and resources and devote it towards getting justice for Sergei Magnitsky, which is what I've done for the last five and a half years. And Sergei, as many of you know, um, uh, wrote everything down. He wrote down everything that happened to him in the form of 450 complaints that he filed during his 358 days in detention. And that, that, those documents should have led to the prosecution of, of a number of people for torture and murder. Um, but the Russian government um, refused to acknowledge that anyone did anything wrong, and they exonerated every single person involved. Um, they gave promotions and state honors to some of the most complicit um, and it became obvious to me that we needed to get justice outside of Russia if we were going to get any justice at all. And so um, 
I started looking for justice. And I discovered something very demoralizing. Um, for I'm not a lawyer, and I sort of thought that in my mind that, that justice should have been possible. Um, and there is, there, is no, there is no mechanism to get justice in a situation like this. It just doesn't exist. Um, the, the best that one can do is, um, as Congressman McGovern said, is you can go and ask a politician that you know to write a letter. Um, and then maybe if that letter has some impact on the government, then maybe the government will bring up the case. Um, but it has no impact on anything else. And, uh, and that just, I just couldn't live with that. And so as I looked at, at what, what, um, uh, what, what I could do in this situation, it, it, it seemed to me that the one thing that was, what was obvious about this, this crime was that this crime was about money. It was about the theft of $230 million. And it was about the um, murdering of the guy who uncovered that theft. And the people who steal that kind of money in Russia don't like to keep it in Russia because as easily as they stole it, it could be stolen from them. And so... For all the, um, uh, so, so and they, they like to um, enjoy property rights and rule of law when they have that kind of money, and they like to keep their money in the West. They like to keep it in London and, and Switzerland and New York. They like to send their kids to school in the West. They like to send their wives and girlfriends on shopping trips to the West. And so we had, um, there was something that we have some some uh, ability to influence. And so when I brought that to Congressman McGovern's committee, um, uh, you know, light bulb went off, and um, and that was the that became the, the the idea of taking those privileges away from these people became something which I I would define as the new technology for for fighting um, human rights abuses um, in Russia and ultimately in the West, and uh, and it became clear that we were onto something. Um, I mean, it was, it was sort of intuitively obvious to us that we were onto something just based on the, the concept, but it came, became clear in the Russians' reaction to this. So um, the, the, every, they, they would send FSB officers to every hearing and every lecture that I, I ever gave on this, on this subject. Um, Putin declared it his, his um, single most important foreign policy objective with America to stop the Magnitsky sanctions. Um, they were just absolutely terrified. And... Um, and we also this, this was reinforced when when various Russian opposition leaders came came to Washington, and um, uh, Boris Nemtsov was one of the um, most outspoken um, supporters of the Magnitsky Act um, in Washington, in Brussels, and, and various other places. And he he came here and said, "If you know you've you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime, they like to um, do their terrible crimes at home, and then they like to enjoy the the." fruits of the West, and if you take this away from them. And um, uh, uh, there, there's another, another person who's, uh, so he was obvious, he was murdered on the 27th of February um, for his opposition and perhaps for his endorsement of the Magnitsky Act. And um, uh, 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 Natalia Pelavin, who is um, also a, a human rights supporter, has just been arrested. She's not allowed to leave the country. She's supposed to be coming here tomorrow to testify or to uh, give a speech at the um, uh, uh, Nemsoff Memorial. I'm, I'm going to take her place, and so we're on to something. Um, uh, it's it's obvious that that um, this is something that, that the Russians care about, and it's obvious that everybody cares about it. Um, and they, this may not have been the um, uh, uh, 20, 25 or thirty years ago. This may not have been the technology that worked. You know, the Khmer Rouge didn't go on on um, 
vacation to Saint-Tropez, but um, the Uzbek regime does. And so we're, we're on to something much, much bigger than, than just one case or one country, and that's the beauty of the Global Magnitsky Act. And, and uh, I'm here in Washington this week. I just testified at the um, uh, House Subcommittee on um, Human Rights uh, in front of Chris Smith and his co-committee chairman, our co-committee members, and, and um, we're, um, uh, we're hopefully going to move this um, quickly and, and um, through the House and the Senate, and, we'll, and it will become a, a piece of legislation which will honor Sergei Magnitsky's um, sacrifice and make sure that his death wasn't a meaningless death. Mm-hmm. Final. Yeah. <clears throat> well, thanks. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Congressman. Thank you, Actually, Charles. let me say one thing, that Kyle Parker um, is, is a modest man. Um, um, he's featured in my book. Um, in the, uh, there's two chapters on him in my book. Um, uh, there's a chapter called Kyle Parker's War. And um, if you've ever seen the movie or read the, read the book Charlie Wilson's War, um, it, it's uh, Kyle Par- basically Kyle Parker is the um, – if, if it hadn't been for Kyle Parker, um, the Magnitsky Act – um, would have wouldn't have ever become law. Um, he basically worked 24/7 for three years, blocking and tackling and 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 working his way through every different dysfunction of Washington um, to make sure that this was a law that that came into existence. And and um, he he will have a place in history for for the work that he did on on the Magnitsky Act. Well, thank you, Bill. Me me and about half of this room over the past I don't know four or five years. But, but thank you nonetheless. It's great to be here with, with so many friends and, and, and on this panel and here at Hudson. And, and thank you, Charles, for the, uh, the invitation. Um, let's start with Bill's book. Uh, first, a plug as to how readable it is. I have a, a 13-year-old daughter who had come to know Bill as a voice on the telephone calling and interrupting Thanksgiving dinners or whatever was going on. It's Bill from, you know, from London. Uh, and uh, usually it was a whispers and, well, we can't speak about this yet. That was, that was the time, particularly when you called me and told me, told me about Alexander Petipilichny's uh, death. So serious stuff. But anyway, my daughter had come to know the story. And when the book came out, she said, oh, I want to get, get the book. And Bill sent me an advanced copy. And I said, well, you just can't lose it because it's not out yet. And, and uh, she read it a few days. She had only two questions at the end of the book. She said, one, what is a G8? Well, that's a good question. We, we call it the G7 now, but remember the time when President Clinton went to Denver and wanted to, you know. Um, the other question she had was, why didn't you help in the first place? And sort of that's, you know, a few words about how I got involved. Bill had been, as many of all of us know, had, had been coming around various capitals after having mysteriously lost his visa to Russia, having been the largest foreign portfolio investor. Uh, and, uh, you know, and something of a champion of some of the economic reforms that had taken place in the early Putin era. So it was rather surprising that he had been bounced from the country and was looking to restore his visa. And so when I was getting these emails, hey, can you meet with Bill, I was sort of blowing him off and busy with other things and didn't want to take the meeting, didn't see how, how we necessarily could fit in. Visas were privileges after all. It was hard, particularly in a situation where the United States denies so many visas and often doesn't give an, an explanation or maybe never gives an explanation. So finally we met and on, the th- on the third uh, occasion, and this was, Bill, this was early 2009, I think it was February. So Sergei Magnitsky was in prison at the time. And I began the meeting, said, Bill, I, you know, we can't help you with your visa. I'm glad you're here. I'd love to you know, hear what you think about what's going on in the Russian market and you know, tell us a few good stories. And he said, listen, that's not what I'm here for. Can you just hear me out? 
and he told for the first time in Washington the story of Sergei Magnitsky. Uh, at the time, it, you know, it hadn't ended, and I, in, in some sense, because we're here talking about globalizing this, it, his legacy still hasn't ended. Um, and I was so uh, impressed by it, my only reaction at the time was simply, could you tell that story again? Told it again, and I thought, I mean, it was just something so incredible that, and, and so different from the paradigm we had been used to ex experiencing with Russia, that, you know, some... One businessman was fighting another businessman, and somebody's money was lost, and perhaps there were real issues of the rule of law, but ultimately it was a stake of money and property rights, business rights, and here, here I was at the time at the Helsinki Commission, Human Rights Commission, sort of feeling like, you know, didn't, not to say that we didn't have a role, but this was an entirely different story. I heard the story um, of what to me really struck me as, in a sense, the, the anti-Pavlik Morozov, right? And there's this, for those of you who aren't familiar with Russian folklore and early, early Soviet period, there was this hero, a, a boy. And the, and the story's become a little more controversial even, even lately. There's some various history on what parts of it were true. But there was this boy who was extolled by the Soviet authorities for having turned in his parents, essentially, in the, in, in the Stalinist era. And every park you went to, there was a statue of Pavlik Morozov. I mean, just a, a really brutal reality of, of how that would be held up as a model. And... And in the story of Sergei Magnitsky, I see this young Russian, this, this, in a sense, a product of, you know, what, what we had hoped for and thought the Medvedev era, the modernization, and all this talk about anti-corruption would have been about, right? A simple, everyman Russian laboring in the vineyards, coming into the office with his coffee. You know, this was someone who, not only did he work for, for, for Bill, but had a number of other clients, including small NGOs, uh, auditing their books and doing that work. Um, he wasn't, you know, a, a bullhorn-toting protester, wasn't even really a human rights activist. He's simply um, someone who was doing their job with integrity. And to me, the power of his story at a time when we were seeing such dark clouds on the horizon in terms of corruption, the rule of law, Russia, which really feel like this, this, Sergei Magnitsky is really not just a hero for modern Russia, he is the hero for modern Russia. In the sense of that his story needs to be more widely known, and I, so... After hearing Bill out, I went about the business of being a jaded sort of Russia hand, trying to dig dirt on the story and find out what part of it wasn't true and how Bill was sucking us into a vendetta of one Kremlin faction against the other. Or so with, where was the money or what was the story? And uh, I went all over town and talking to government types and non-government types and Russians and others and found that the story checked out. And not only to check out, it was worse than Bill was describing it. Or saying, hey, you think this is bad? You know, this is a medium-sized fraud essentially, $230 million at the time. And so we got involved, and we eventually put Bill on the stand at a hearing called the Medvedev Thaw, Is It Real? Will It Last? It was chaired by Senator Ben Cardin. Bill told the story, and, you know, as far as I was concerned at the time, that was that. I covered a wide portfolio. There were other human rights cases to work on, and, and as the congressman had sent, you know, I, I thought all we could do was write a letter or, or ask that it or put, a, put a case on the stand or... Send, send something to the president and say, could you raise this case at this meeting? And, you know, then when we did that, we, you know, I guess our work was done, right? What, what, what more can we do? We don't have any magic levers. We can't send in SEAL Team 6. Um, and I had, and, and, and shortly after that, we had sent a letter up of our concerns, and I neglected to include the Magnitsky case in that because I felt we, we had just touched that base, so let's go and look at religious freedom or property rights or some other basket of issues and include that. And had heard uh, from a friend that Bill was kind of upset, and I thought, well, you know, how many people get to tell their story before Congress? And that was the last I thought about the story 
until I came into my office on the morning of November 17th, um, 2009. And our press secretary said, hey, did, did you hear about this? Isn't that, isn't that the guy we heard about? And had gotten the news that Sergei Magnitsky had died in jail. And for me, it was really uh, a clarifying moment of how I approached you know, my own little cubicle and desk working for the U.S. government trying to monitor human rights and thought that, you know, this is going to change how we do human rights. This is going to change, you know, and, 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 you know, thinking that we're going to take this case and drive it and, and, not, and not succumb to the, the, the illusion that somehow if we focus too much on one thing that other things will be neglected, that we'll sweep it all up into this and that one person, one case is enough. And, and, you know, as you said, Bill, and I think this is really the, the secret of your success in, in telling this story, is that it's not statistics. It's not the sort of the mind-numbing, depressing story of here's a graph of the, the decline of press freedom or here's the story of the North, you know, what's going on in the North Caucasus. Without hearing the story of the human face and the, and the individual behind it, we simply not move. You know, kind of, I, I hate to put it that way, but you, you go out of some of these meetings and think, boy, it sucks to be you. I'm glad I don't live there. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know what we can do. But when you hear the story of the individual and and so another thing, just to mention, that summer, after, after you had spoken, Natalia Estemirova was assassinated in the North Caucasus. And for me, she was the first person I had known personally who, you know, met an assassin's bullet. I mean, I'd known of other cases, Galina Starovoitova and others. And, um, and so when this Magnitsky, when Magnitsky dies in jail, there really is a feeling that we need to do more than simply send a press release and, and condemn this. Um, let me also make an observation that to me is, is so powerful about his story, and I suspect it's carried out in other countries where, where, the, where this uh, you know, human rights abuse in China and other cases. When you look at Magnitsky and the folks in Russia who had sort of worked for justice you know, on the anti-corruption beat, you know, promoted his, his story, um, and you look at the people who stole from the Russian people, who op knowingly opened false cases, who arrested Magnitsky, took him away from his, his wife and his, 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 two, his two boys. Um, they're almost the same age, right? And I just, to me, that's sort of you know, two Russians staring each other in the face. You know, what, what changes and what has to change so that there's more Sergei Magnitsky's and less Artyom Kuznetsov's and, and, and Pavel Karpov's? Um, the, the other thing I, I wanted to, you know, sort of remark, you had mentioned about thinking Putin was a nationalist. I continue to go back to Alexei Navalny's wonderful, you know, notion that, you know, in a sense, Russia's leadership, they're pro-Western and we're pro-Russian, right? They keep their money in, in, in the West. They rob and steal and abuse the human rights of the Russian people. And, and here we are, in the sense, working and concerned about human rights in Russia. So it really was motivated from a love and an esteem for Russia and her people and her culture. And occasionally that would be noticed. I, I remember we had a track two delegation that was coming through to the Russian embassy to see Senator Cardin. I was a little worried, and what are they going to tell him? What they told him was they said, Senator, thank you for what you're doing. We understand you do it to us because you know we can do better. And, and to me, that was so right on. It was exactly what we were doing, it was because we want to see these countries take their place, you know, in, in particularly Russia, as and be that modern European power um, that it should be. Um, 
And let me just close with a little story on the effectiveness of this approach. Um, we had Pussy Riot through to see some senators uh, a year or so back. I had, the, I had the, the honor of escorting them around the White House Correspondence Center, which was a lot of fun. I don't know how many people came up and said, hey, can I take a picture with the girls? I'm really a big fan. And um, they actually thought they were a rock group and thought that people listened to their music. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> so Senator Jeff Flake, in our meeting with Pussy Riot in, in the Senate Foreign Relations room, he asked him, he said, you know, how effective is this approach? How effective are these personal sanctions? And they had a great answer. And, and w w without skipping a beat, they said it's effective at keeping the conversation alive. And to me, that's really what this is all about. This makes sure that those irritants in our relations with these countries, which are present anyway, shall never be invisible. That they will be visible as long as they are real, and, and that way we can deal with them. And if it causes others to accuse us of human rights violations, fine. That, the fact that they levy those accusations vindicates the very premise that human rights should be protected. And so we can discuss those things on the merits, ignoring any ill will or disingenuousness of anyone who might accuse us otherwise. Um, but to me, that's the most powerful, is, is that this makes sure that these awkward issues that always need that extra push in a world where you have you know, competing interests and, and, and you know, the fast pace of, of world events, that are always trying to kick the can down the road and say, now is not really the time to bring this up. No, when you have a public list, when you say these things, they are going to be part of our relationship with other countries, and it's going to be an awkward part. Um, anyway, not for me. All right. Well, before we open things up to this very distinguished audience, I, I think um, one thing that really stands out in terms of the passage of the Magnitsky Act is Sergei's story. And how, how, and you all talked about, it, there's a personalization there that, that made people want to vote for the bill and all. For global Magnitsky, uh, do we have some, some cases lined up that are going to push people to want to vote for, for global? How is that going to be handled strategically in terms of the passage of the bill? And perhaps you'd all like to just say a few words about global Magnitsky and, uh, and the strategy for getting the bill passed and, and what we should... Uh, May expect there, and then we'll open open things up to the audience. Basically, the um, well, part of the reason we call it the Sergei Magnitsky the Global Sergei Magnitsky Act is um, uh, you need some. I mean, Sergei's face is still on, on the on the act. Um, it's uh, it's not going after Russia anymore. It's going after everybody. I mean, um, uh, there are so many cases, and and, and I. It, it's interesting because I, I was um, uh, I go every year to the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is um, which is sort of the Davos of human rights um, advocacy, and I gave a speech about Sergei Magnitsky, and I was just swarmed afterwards with um, by by victims in every country um, who were all saying, um, "How do we? You know, I, I'm I'm from Kazakhstan, and here here's my story. How do how do we um, how do we get a Magnitsky Act for Kazakhstan? How do we get one for Tibet? How do we get one for China, for Venezuela? And it became so obvious that this is like um, something. There there's stories everywhere, and um, uh, it became so obvious that this is like uh, just the, 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 there's just such demand for this. Um, uh, uh, I don't think. I mean, I, I think I think. It, uh, in a certain way, the, the way that this thing is going to work is that um, uh, all these different victim groups are going to fan out across Capitol Hill, with their, and everyone's got their, their specific sympathizers, and we're going to end up with, with um, 
I can't imagine that there'll be that much opposition to this bill because of that. The only opposition I think from from anybody is going to come from the um, various business groups that are going to say this is going to hurt business. Um, but I, I can't imagine that um, uh, with the you know every different interest group having every different friend that this, there's going to be a lot of opposition to this thing. Well, let me, let me, let me first say thank, thanks to the Hudson Institute for doing this. And uh, and I and I when I walked in here, just I didn't look at everybody in the audience here, but I thank you for those of you in the audience here. And there are many of you here who have who worked on this, and I appreciate it because uh, this is really a this wouldn't have happened unless there was this incredible collaboration. And um, look, I, I I serve as co-chair of the Tom Lantos Human Rights Commission. I mean, almost every week we do a hearing on. Um, Human rights challenges in, in countries all around the world, and um, and and the most effective meetings uh, and hearings that we have, I think, are the ones in which people tell personal stories. I mean, we are deluged with facts and figures and statistics, and I think you know, um, for a lot of people in Congress, they're so overwhelmed with all of those facts and figures and statistics that they don't feel them, um, and uh, why they can say that they're terrible, when you hear, when you talk about individual cases, um, I think people are moved. And there's no shortage of individual cases. Um, you know, whether we're talking about Russia or Bahrain or Venezuela, or I go right down the list of, of countries where, you know, human rights defenders uh, are routinely uh, denied their rights. They are, they're, they are brutalized, they are tortured, they are killed. Uh, where that you have people who are government officials or working with the government who are ripping off the citizens of their country. Um, and so, uh, look, I think there'll be lots of, um, lots of people advocating for things, but, uh, but I think if you do a global Magnitsky, I think the signal is this, that we, 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 the Magnitsky Act that's in place for Russia right now, um, the administration is, is moving, you know, not as dramatically as I would like, um, or think they should, but nonetheless, they are naming names. They, they, are, they, are, they are reviewing. Uh, names that are going in. And I think that's a signal uh, to other countries that, hey, maybe, maybe the United States is serious about this. You know, maybe there, may be some, maybe there might be some consequences uh, to some of the actions that, uh, that are taken um, in our country. So, um, so I, I, I think, um, I, I really do believe that, you know, once we get it through the committee process, and, you know, and Chris Smith is going to lead us through the committee process, I, I don't think we're going to have a problem on the House floor, and I don't think this, I don't think you'd have a problem in the Senate uh, chamber either. Hmm. Well, this this is uh, good news. Before we open it up to the audience, I mean, I'm I'm just struck in these times of political cynicism at the bipartisan success of of Magnitsky, and I hope soon global Magnitsky, and and also we see how. Uh, uh, non-cynical individuals can accomplish great things, uh, and so uh, it's a very uh, th this this uh, whole business is extremely inspiring. Uh, and I think that's that's actually uh, uh, when Global Magnitsky is uh, is passed, it will be very interesting to see the way it is used. And that's a, that's a, a whole other subject. And I'm sure there'll be lots of cynicism in the foreign policy community about this. And um, uh, it, it doesn't fit into our theories terribly well to go after individuals like this. And so Bill's analogy of it being the iPad of uh, <laughs> human rights is, is kind of uh, perhaps uh, uh, appropriate. It's, it's certainly innovative and something 
something new and something that hasn't, uh, well, it hasn't come out of any of the think tanks or political thinkers, but from practical people taking uh, action. So anyway, let's open it up to the, to the very distinguished audiences. And if you can please just identify uh, yourself first. And then the question can be directed towards any particular member of the panel or, or uh, towards the panel in, in general. The gentleman uh, back there. Alexis Sapchenko, I represent here myself. I have a question to everybody, but mostly to Mr. Parker. And as uh, you said, you found the Achilles heel, heel, in the, heel in the Putin's regime, which is the access to the Western shopping, access to the Western bank banks, and access to the joys of traveling to the West. Don't you think that if the United States, by chance, and Europe would, uh, would manage to agree to introduce a visa ban on 1,000 top Russian executives and oligarchs, they would strangle Putin with their own hands and we would get rid of this nuisance forever. Well, I'd hesitate to predict what would happen, but I think it would be powerful, uh, particularly if it was coordinated with the EU. Uh, and you know, that's, that's a key point here is, is and, and it's, also, it's also something that's underway. There's been, a, you know, I don't know, last I checked, 15? national parliaments that had explored this and have been pushing their governments to do this, some further along than others, mostly in Europe, Canada, other places. Um, but yeah, it, it, it would be powerful. And I think the hope behind the approach is that, you know, you should face the music at home, right? If, if you're going to spoil your own judiciary and your own system, you know, when the music stops, you should have, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be afforded the protection of the rule of law when you've so trashed it in your own country. And the hope is that if you know, there's, there's a serious threat of that, then you know, perhaps some of these elite will be more serious about pushing these reforms. Again, you know, exactly how that works out, it's, it, it's, it's hard to say. Um, and, so, and some of it, of course, is also psychological. The, you know, the fact that this is being done, and, and that's not to be underestimated. Uh, Doug Fife, I'm a fellow here at Hudson. Um, thank you for the extremely interesting presentations. A few quick questions. One is, could you explain the mechanism of the act? I mean, how does it work? How does somebody get on the list? Secondly, what is the attitude of the key elements of the U.S. government toward the legislation? Because traditionally, it, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic government, the bureaucracy, the national security bureaucracy, does not smile generally on efforts of this kind. And so I'd be interested to, to hear uh, what the attitudes are. And then related to that is, what's your evaluation of how the government apparatus has dealt with the existing legislation? I mean, how, how much use of it have they made? Wants to take mechanics. Which part would I would I take? Mechanics. Yeah. Well, the, the smiling. The smiling. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> the smiling part. Um, yeah. So the mechanics. The uh, the mechanism envisages that the administration will be doing most of this. That you know that they don't need to wait to hear from Congress or from human rights groups. And and, and this is partly informed. You know, we built this thing over two Congresses. So you know, if, if we had to, you know, completely 
started from scratch, it might look a little bit different. But as we move along in this dance with the Russian opposition, in the particular context of the Magnitsky Act and the administration, we're refining it and adding things in and trying to make sure that loopholes aren't used as we've seen them used in other human rights legislation. The one I would, I would point out specifically is, I believe, the Burmese Democracy Act, I think of 2003, and, and the Burmese Jade Act that called for public lists that we never saw any public lists. Um, so we would constantly hear from the administration, and again, it's any administration. This is not an approach that comes easy to an administration, and it's certainly not an approach that comes easy to foreign ministries around the world. Um, but the idea is, you know, they, they continue to tell us that, you know, you don't really need to do this. This is redundant to what we're already doing. So fine, if it's redundant to what you're already doing, then just sort of do what you're already doing and tell people you're doing it. Isn't, isn't that really what the act is? The act says that it doesn't send the U.S. government on a worldwide investigation and manhunt and looking under bushes and expending all these resources to find out about what crimes are going on. We have consular lookout, you know, databases. We have, you know, we have posts that write human rights reports every year as, uh, under mandate from Congress. We already know a lot about what's going on, and we know some of the most egregious cases. Um, and, and the administration had told us, you know, we've been trying to do something like this for two successive administrations, just haven't gotten to it ourselves. And we've seen other parts of it, you know, uh, Samantha Powers' Presidential Study Directive 10, the atrocities order, tried to get at this a little bit, but then it, it just fell, it falls off the map without that congressional oversight. And that's where there's another mechanism in the, in, in the legislation where Congress select members of Congress on a bipartisan basis can submit names and request a determination. Congress is not listing these individuals. It's, it's asking for determination in a, in a specific framework. But the idea is that the president makes a determination. Now, in the Magnitsky Act, the president delegated his authority to the secretaries of state and treasury. So state and treasury make a determination using the criteria in the act as to who, who meets this and then uh, subject them to a, a, a dual sanction, a visa ban and an asset freeze. And, of course, that requires it to be public, so essentially you get your public visa ban through the asset freeze, because asset freezes can't be done. Uh, I mean, the banking sector freezes assets. Um, of course, there's you know, classified annex provision. There's, 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 there's waiver authority in, in, in that regard. But I hope that explains the mechanics a little bit. In, in reality, the way we've seen it work is that the State Department, various posts, DRL working with consular affairs and regional, well, in this case, EUR, in, in a global magnet, would be all the regional bureaus, work up a list. And then they basically send that list to Treasury, and Treasury thins it out, right? How many of these people can we produce evidentiary packages on, targeting packages? And then the NSC has full control over, you know, flipping the switch and lighting up Treasury's SDN list, which is what causes it all to be public. And it's, and it's a pretty high standard. I mean, and the, the Treasury requirements are, you know, sometimes frustrate us because of what the, you know, evidence requirements are. We think that there's more evidence on some individuals, uh, you know, uh, than meet what Treasury standards are. But look, I, I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. Um, you know, I, I don't think that uh, presidents or administrations usually appreciate Congress doing anything. Um, you know, um, you know, or certainly requiring requiring them to do anything, and you know, and and it was kind of puzzling. I mean, and and I, so I, I, you know, this wasn't something that the administration was cheering us on to get done. And well, we're, you know, we can't wait to sign it. Um, uh, it wasn't one of those <laughs> types of things. It was, you know, a lot of skepticism. And um, 
you know, and even on the, on the you know, one of the things that complicated things, you know, and, and resulted in kind of narrowing it to Russia instead of global was the administration said, uh, you know, uh, the cost of this would be, you know, more than we can deal with right now. Notwithstanding the fact, as Cal mentioned, they do country reports, they do human rights reporting all the time, they gather information on people all the time, but nonetheless, they were saying it was going to be a cost, and that was co that complicated things, you know, in terms of uh, you know house passage of it, um, and so we had to narrow it down. But um, but be, but and since it's been in in effect, um, you know, there are 28 names, um, 34, 30, I'm sorry, 34 names, um, and um, and I will be honest with you, I I, I think there've been too careful, careful is the wrong word, too timid. I think is the better word. Um, and I think, and I'm, 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 and I expected a, a more, but nonetheless, uh, 34 names would not, you know, th these 34 names would not be on any list if it wasn't for this bill. Um, and it gives us an opportunity to engage the administration on a regular basis, you know, and press them, and to and to have them focus on these things. And so they are they are putting people on the list. Um, I, again, I go back to where I began. I don't think there would be any consequence for any of these 34 people had it not been for this bill, and because it, it's forcing the administration's hand. And um, and I think the same would be true with the global Magnitsky. It, 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 give, it would give us an opportunity to engage them um, and to push them toward a result that we think is just. Mm -hmm. Thomas, the the uh, gentleman in front in the purple tie. I'm Raymond Baker, Global Financial Integrity. First of all, a question for the Congressman. How do we keep this from being um, uh, completely politically applied? I've watched anti-corruption agencies and financial intelligence units all over the world uh, apply their uh, efforts uh, uh, for political ends. Uh, even here in the United States, the denial of visas to people who are suspected of uh, of uh, kleptocracy, um, uh, that information isn't widely available, but appears to have been uh, fairly uh, selectively applied. Is that something we should worry about, the selective application of it uh, um, uh, or not? And then secondly, a question for uh, uh, Bill Browder. Um, uh, gun vor. Uh, sanctions uh, uh, against uh, uh, some of the leadership, the directors of gun war. Uh, Putin and his immediate uh, and richest uh, colleagues. Um, have sanctions uh, affected them uh, at all yet? Even the World Bank is estimating that uh, Russia will return from uh, deficit uh, GDP uh, performance to at least uh, uh, zero uh, growth in the year 2016. That doesn't indicate that uh, what we've done so far has had any particular impact uh, uh, on the leadership. Is that right or not right? So in terms of whether you should be worried about whether this becomes politicized and it's not um, kind of uh, implemented in, in, the, in the way that we all envision it to be. Look, I think, I think with any, any law, uh, um, you worry about that. You want, you want it to be uh, implemented objectively and fairly. Um, and, you know, and I think that's a, a job for Congress to, you know, to make sure that this doesn't become, you know, we're only going to go after 
you know, bad guys in countries that we we don't have economic relations with, or we don't we don't you know we don't like, or whatever we have a problem with. I mean, you, you want this to be done. Um, you want this to be done in a way that has integrity. And I think, I guess, if there's if, I, if one of the good things about kind of the administration making it, uh, making the the standard high uh, to kind of get people onto this list, um, is that you know um, we we got we, people have to work really hard to be really bad to kind of make that cut, um, and there has to be lots of evidence available. Um, and um, but I think um, you know I'm, I'm I'm counting on you know people doing a proper oversight over over this over the implementation, and I'm counting on people like you, um, you know, to, uh, to to keep this administration and future administrations feet to the fire that they're doing this in a way that maintains integrity. If it becomes a political list, then it loses its impact. Um, if it looks like this is just a political vendetta, um, then I think it, it becomes um, less effective. Um, and uh, but right now, I think people who are getting on this list, uh, I think, uh, realize that they're being shamed um, and that there is a consequence. And I think people are afraid to get on this list. Yep. And so uh, I think it's you know th thus far, I think it is having an impact. And um, you know, and again, I'm you know, I, I got a. Some other people I would like to be on that list, but you know, you know, but they got to meet this standard, and uh, uh, so um, you know, we we got to make sure that this, like any other law that we pass, is done uh, is implemented in the way we intend it to be. To answer your question quickly about <clears throat> our sanctions working, um, the the main sanction which is devastating for Russia is what's called sectoral sanctions. There there's two types of sanctions. There's individual targeted sanctions. And then there are sectoral sanctions. Sectoral sanctions um, forbid Western um, Westerners, U.S. and Europeans, from lending money to certain Russian companies for longer than three months, which have effectively <clears throat> dried up the capital markets for all Russian companies. And what that means is that Russian companies currently owe $630 billion in hard currency to Western creditors. And they can no longer, every time a, a, a bond or a bank loan comes due, in, in, historically they could go and refinance those in the West. Now all of a sudden they can't, so they have to say, who's going to lend that money? Um, well, the Chinese aren't going to lend the money, I can tell you that. And nobody in Russia wants to lend the money because they're all trying to get their money out of Russia and into safe places where, where, they're not, where their money is not going to be at risk. And so the only lender in Russia is the lender of last resort, which is the Central Bank of Russia. And the central bank only has $370 billion of, of hard currency reserves. And so what's going to happen is sometime over the next year and a half or two years, um, the central bank reserves are going to be run down. And at the same time, a lot of companies that aren't considered to be strategic are going to go bankrupt. And um, uh, I don't know where the World Bank is getting their prediction that, that GDP is going to be fine. Um, maybe GDP in ruble terms, 50% down is going to be fine. But, but the, uh, the Russian economy is going into a major crisis right now oil prices, sanctions, and the only way it's not going to be in a crisis is if oil prices surprisingly go back up um, a lot or if, if we lose our nerve on those sectoral sanctions. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't believe either is going to happen. And so I think that it's a waiting, you know, we're, we're, we're playing chicken with Vladimir Putin right now, and he's trying to pretend that nothing's, nothing is bothering him, but he's scared to death because if he runs out of money, that's why the Soviet Union fell apart was because they ran out of money. Uh, Thomas, I'm changing the image, thanks. 
Tom Firestone from Baker McKenzie. I had a question for you about the global Magnitsky list. And are you at all, is there a danger, following up on the previous question, that maybe you're setting off a um, process that's going to be uncontrollable and that other countries are now going to start retaliating with similar lists against the U.S., uh, congressmen, um, business people? And they don't have the controls that you've all spoken about in the Treasury Department and the high st evidentiary standards. And this can be used by other, maybe not in the U.S., but by other countries as a political vendetta, retaliation. We're going to have every country banning everybody else publicly, freezing their assets, and then we're just going to get to a point where it's unworkable and everyone will have an international agreement not to, ban not to use this as a political instrument. Are you worried that it could go that way? Um, can I just, so... Um, uh, uh. Uh, my friend Tom, who's just asked the question, and I both had both were arbitrarily banned by Russia with, without this type of stuff, and so. <laughs> but no, they, they, people do it anyways. P people do it anyways. I mean, people banning people left, right, and center all the time. Anyone they don't like. I've got many friends who are journalists who can't go to China because China doesn't like certain journalists. Many friends who are banned from Russia. It happens anyways. Um, but but. <clears throat> What, what, what the important thing is that if important countries, if the United States and, and if the G7, not the G8, um, uh, starts using this as a pedestrian tool, not, not, not a high-profile tool, but it becomes just a pedestrian thing where bad guys just can't travel anymore. It's, just, it's, you know, it's not even a part of international relations anymore. It's a part of judicial enforcement that bad guys can't travel. I think it will have a dramatic effect. I think people – right now there is no deterrent for being bad. It's, there's, there's no consequence. If all of a sudden you create a consequence where bad guys um, have to worry, and if it becomes a pedestrian thing where they think, oh, my God, you know, if, I, if, I, if I go into the interior ministry and do torture as a, as a career, uh, you know, I'm not going to be able to leave Uzbekistan anymore or, or wherever, then, then it's not a, a, you know, that changes the whole, everybody, you know, evaluates activities on, on the basis of costs and benefits of risk and reward. If you create a risk for them doing that, then, then that's a really a, a very strong uh, thing. Will, will, will third world countries use this arbitrarily? Maybe they, they, they will, but they already do. Um, but will, will, the only question is, will civilized countries use this arbitrarily? And, and, and um, uh, I don't think so. Uh, the, yeah, the woman in the yellow sweater. Yeah. Oh, you got one there. Thank you all very much. Um, I very much enjoyed your conversation. Um, the question is for... Can you introduce yourself? Oh, forgive first, me. Please? My name is Conchita Sarnoff. I'm the executive director of Alliance to Rescue Victims of Trafficking, which is a DC foundation to help rescue and rehabilitate trafficked children. Um, as you might know, there are over 22.7 million children being trafficked across the world. And according to the latest figures, over 1 million children are being trafficked into the United States. Some of these children are coming in from Russia, from Ukraine, uh, certainly from Mexico. And um, according to various reports, the Russian, Ukrainian, Mexican, and Colombian cartels are the biggest culprits. Um, how would you suggest that the cartel leaders and those who manage the trafficking of children, which is a global network, um, how would you suggest that the United States penalize uh, the cartel leaders and put visa bans and et cetera and everything you've been speaking about? Because clearly this is an issue that continues to grow and we don't seem to have a handle on it at all. Thank you. Well, 
What do you suggest? Uh, no, I mean, I, because I mean, you know, the, the, a lot of a lot of uh, you know a lot of the things that we kind of are putting into in, into this bill. I mean, the administration has the ability now to do some of this stuff. Um, you know, we've done a lot of hearings on trafficking, and it's and it's and it's and it's a and it's a it's a it's a horrendous problem. And trying to figure out how to do things beyond what we're doing now to think more imaginatively about how you can stem this. You know, and hold those who are responsible to some account. I mean, is 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 difficult. You know, is difficult. But I mean, I um, it, maybe this is for a, a further conversation offline. But I mean, I'd, I'd be interested in, you know, in trying to figure out, you know, some out of the box new ways to approach this. Yeah. And can I just say one, one thing before too? You know, I, I've been I've been banned from going to certain countries. I haven't tried to go to Russia yet, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, you know, but I've been denied visas to Bahrain and to and to Sudan, and I go right down a, a list of countries. Um, you know, uh, and uh, diplomats and politicians and uh, and citizens get routinely denied access to Tibet. Um, yet, when Chinese officials come to the United States, oftentimes there are no restrictions the way they can travel. Um, so people are doing they they are they are they are d denying us access. To places because they don't like what we say about human rights or about corruption. Um, I guess my point would be um, if we don't kind of go down this road, and again, this is basically, t you know, very careful, targeted sanctions against individuals um, that we have evidence to show that they're involved in these bad things. If we don't, you know, if if we don't have like a Magnitsky hack, um, then what is the alternative? We just continue to kind of go along as we've been going along, and I, you know, and I think people. Sometimes do these things because they can get away with them. There's there's no consequence. There's no consequence to anybody in Bahrain for uh, denying me a visa. I mean, yeah, so the State Department says they sent a letter saying it's not not a good thing, uh, but who cares? I mean, you know, that, that, that there's no, um, or you know, if I can't travel to Tibet, there's no consequence for the Chinese government uh, for that. Um, you know, um, you know, we we are actually incredibly generous. Uh, to people from some of these countries where we ha that have terrible human rights records, and then we allow them to come to this country. And uh, you know, I don't want this to turn into something that's out of control. And that's why this has to be carefully managed, and we have to maintain the integrity. Um, but I think you, I think you can do that if, if if the you know if the desire and the and the will is there to do this right. And I think um, and I think it is. Um, you know um, you know th then I think this could be an, an effective tool and. I don't think it's going to be used indiscriminately, and you know, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people are going to be on the list if it goes global. Um, I think it's going to be used very, very carefully, um, and um, and you know, and I think if it is and done properly, it, it will be effective. Is there any mechanism for a person who's put on the list to defend himself? I think. I guess what I would say on that <clears throat> is that it's complicated, right? So for visas, there is no due process that's afforded. And, and certainly we don't aim to build any in or completely reimagine the Immigration Nationality Act. On the asset freeze, asset freezes can be challenged in court. Uh, it's, you know, it's a high bar to meet. But what I would say is that what's happening and the mechanisms that are available are all of those that are already available under all of our sanctions programs anyway and that are that are in laws like the international emergency economic powers act which is the overarching law that america uses and the magnitsky act taps 
to do the sanctioning uh, during peacetime, right? I mean, it's the law that you know, the president uses that in, in the case of the Ukraine-specific executive orders by invoking the powers and the authorities of IEPA to do this. So in that sense, these folks are in the same category as you know, drug kingpins and terrorists and others. So we're doing this anyway. And, and I think you know, one point that goes to the heart of what, you, what you're doing, Charles, at the Kleptocracy Institute is, do we really believe that human rights is a national security issue? Do we really believe that co corruption and the collapse of the rule of law is a hard national security issue? If we do, then this is, you know, this is no different than what we already do by at, in doing this with, with drug kingpins, organized crime, um, terrorists, and others. Uh, but I suspect that, you know, that's still an argument, you know, we, we need to do a better job selling and explaining about that. I mean, I think when I look at the conflict in Ukraine, I see very clearly, and it looks to me like, you know, the, the utter collapse of the rule of law in Russia, something that we might have seen as a soft values basket issue, has led to a shooting war in, in Europe. Um, I think if we see it in that context, then, then it's obvious. We use the tools we have. We use the tools with, with traffickers. And, and one thing on the trafficking question, and I, 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 you had an op-ed in the, in the Post recently, right, about the collapse of the trafficking deal. Great, great, great piece. Um, you know, with, with, with Congressman Smith on the case, you, you could be assured that if there's a, an angle to use this uh, with trafficking, that will be, you know, Mr. Smith is the, is the author of the Trafficking Victims, Victims Protection Act. Um, uh, Mark Lagon, the new president of Freedom House. I guess I don't have to introduce myself. Um, one of the beauties of this legislation is it connects the two problems of human rights and corruption, as you say, Kyle. Um, my question is for Charles. Um, can you explain a little bit about, if you, you know, to show why you'd need the global instrument, uh, you'd need to look at some other cases besides the flagrant case in Russia. Can you just talk a little bit more about corruption cases elsewhere that might be, uh, you know, a reason for using this legislation? And I gather one of the premises of your, your initiative is that that corruption kind of taints us here in the mm -hmm. United States. Well, actually, I think the, the, you, you would, uh, and Freedom House would provide the names much better than, than I would. I mean, one way to answer that question is what on earth are we, is the kleptocracy initiative having to do with this? Because we don't give a hoot about human rights and freedom and all of that stuff, at least. You know, I don't in my, <laughs> when I'm wearing my kleptocracy initiative hat, right? But what we find is that it's the same, the, the, these, these people whom we would want to sanction under Magnitsky or Global Magnitsky are almost invariably kleptocrats. And, uh, and, and, and so they, they join together. So I guess we do get to this rather simple <coughs> world of Bill Browders where there are good guys and there are bad guys. And so that, you know, we can get at them from one, one angle or another. But I also think, I mean, just to, sorry, just adding to Mark's question, I do, I do think, I mean, to sell global Magnitsky, I think it's great that we still, that Magnitsky is still kind of the lead case. Uh, but I would think it would be good to, to have a bunch of other cases. Perhaps Freedom Houses uh, could uh, come up with some really salient uh, case studies that would support uh, the passage of global Magnitsky. Freedom House, Freedom House uh, <clears throat> two Magnitsky events on the Hill this week, and at both your executive vice president, Daniel uh, Kallengart, uh, had, had a, a pretty good list, yeah. I think eight, right. eight or nine yeah. individuals. Uh, the ones, I don't, I don't think he mentioned Kao Shunli, 
um, uh, China case that uh, I don't cover China, but um, her case has been written up and described as, as, as ripe for targeting in this respect. Two cases I am familiar with, uh, Azerbaijan, Rasul Jafarov, uh, Khadija Ismailova, RFERL reporter uh, in jail for her investigatory reporting around the corruption at the very top of Azerbaijan's government. Thomas, the lady in front there. <clears throat> Hello, I'm Eleanor Bachrock. I've worked for USAID in Ukraine and other places uh, suffer, that have suffered from kleptocracy. Um, I realize that uh, you can't or don't, uh, the, these acts don't extend to heads of state who may well be the, uh, uh, the worst guys. Uh, I don't know how far down does that go in terms of untouchable uh, government officials. And I'd also like to know a little more about what uh, progress on this in uh, other desirable countries like the uh, UK. So the, um, in theory, the act um, applies to everybody. There's no reason why it doesn't act, apply to a head of state. The, the definition is if somebody has perpetrated um, gross human rights abuses, then they're subject to this act. Um, uh, and I think the definition in the Global, Global Magnitsky Act is even more well-defined, so it, 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 it includes command responsibility, meaning so in theory a head of state could be, could be sanctioned. Now, th there is also a, a provision of the act which, which allows executive privilege. Or the, it, so the president Waiver authority. Uh, can, can say, no, we're not going to do this because this violates our national security concerns, um, or the president can say, we're not going to do this publicly, but we'll do this confidenti confidentially. And these were all things that we fought over, what, how, you, how you divided those things up. Um, in Russia, um, we do have now the, um, uh, uh, what's the highest level person in Russia? The deputy? The deputy minister, deputy interior minister? The, the deputy interior minister and the deputy general prosecutor of Russia, who are people who might be considered untouchable, are, are on, this, on this list, which is not, not the interior minister or the general prosecutor, but one level down, which is not, not, um, not, uh, uh, not disastrous. Um, and the last part of your question was? Uh, oh, progress in other countries. Oh, progress in other countries, yeah. which, which is what I'm working on. So um, the, the most probable um, uh, other country um, in the short term, in the very short term, is Canada. Um, the Canadian, I was just in Ottawa, and um, uh, we have some friends here in the audience who are also out there with me, who, um, uh, and, and the Canadian government has indicated the Canadian Parliament has done the same thing that the U.S. Congress did. It's a different, or it's a different structure of, of governance, and so the Parliament can't force a law. That they can only recommend a law, but it was unanimously recommended by all parties, including the government party in Canada, to adopt the Magnitsky Act, and the government has, has indicated that they're now in the process of putting together a piece of, legis a piece of legislation that they would vote for and put in place. Now, anything could derail that as, as uh, you know, it, it's, it's like herding cats to make anything happen in any political system, but I'm pretty optimistic that something will happen in Canada. Um, the European Parliament, again, has called unanimously on the European Union to do the same thing. The European Union, um, again, the European Parliament doesn't have the capacity to force the European Union to do it, and so it's uh, one, it's a country-by-country country story, and um, it's tougher in Europe than it is elsewhere because there's more money, more Russian money in Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm afraid we have to stop here because we've run over. 
already. Um, Bill's book is for sale at the back of the room, I think. Is it still for sale? Yes. Yes. It is. Yeah, stop so I, 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 I'll, I'd be happy to sign, sign a book for anyone who buys one. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all for coming. <laughs>